right, well, we're back to a sojourner. We've had a long break, and um, and as you can see by the video, hopefully, let me just make sure I'm actually recording this thing properly. Uh, yes, it's on gallery view. Excellent. So you should be able to see the other block in the screen, Dr. Gian. We will I'll introduce a little bit, or he'll introduce himself to um in a moment. But let me just uh welcome everyone back. Uh thanks for hanging with us on that break and um and uh, we've got Nick, who is also back in the saddle, I believe. I think he was, uh, he was, I saw pictures of a lovely holiday that he was on. And I'm pretty sure he's preaching last week. So I think he's back. So he should be on soon. Uh, Andre is on like this killer sabbatical. So we'll see him like in 10 years time again. Um, but for, uh, for the rest of us working world, we're, we're getting started. And we're starting off with a long-awaited um, uh, episode. Uh, I've wanted to have Dr. Gian on for so long, uh, ever since, almost ever since I started reading Client, I started reading Dr. Gian as well. So, so uh, we tried to set it up a while ago. We've had a few conversations since, but it's always been, hey, let's wait till this uh, new book comes out, which it has now come out, Biblical Eschatology. And um, I would show you the cover, but it's on uh, my 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 Apple Books on EPUB. So um, you're just going to have to take my word for it. Uh, but you can go Google uh, the, the cover. Have you got a cover there? Have you got a book, uh, Dr. Gian? You should be. You must have a copy of your own book. There it is. Check it out. Beautiful. And that's uh, published by Wiffenstock. And so we'll be talking a little bit more about that book uh, as we go. But um, welcome, Dr. Gian. Uh, it's a great privilege to have you on. It really is. It's a huge honor. It's a great way for us to be kicking uh, off this year, uh, to be speaking with you. I've been looking forward to this so much. Uh, so maybe, you know, I, 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 you, are, you are a major author on, on Kleinian stuff. So let me, uh, with that in place, I'll ask you to just say a little bit more about yourself and introduce yourself to the listeners. I'm so happy uh, to be a guest at the Two Age Soul Journal podcast. I am a um, Korean American theologian and professor. My wife and I live in uh, Columbia, Maryland, in the United States of America. We have two beautiful grown daughters, Helen and Hester. They are living now in Cerritos and San Francisco in California. I am serving Faith Theological Seminary of Cadenceville in Maryland as a professor of a biblical and systematic theology. In addition, we are attending Bethel Korean Presbyterian Church in Alica City, Maryland. I have had a deep interest in the harmony among biblical, historical, and systematic theology, which is comprehensively reflected in my research, teaching, and writing career. Mm. And also, I have a heart for the global mission fields. So I have been writing theological books for the readers in the global mission fields for the last 10 years. Amen. Now, uh, Dr. Jian, have you, has some of that, uh, just hearing that you are uh, teaching at Faith Theological Seminary, does much does much of this material from the books come out of that those lectures and uh, the stuff that you've taught there? Yes, yes, a part of it. Yes, yeah. part of it. Yeah. Lucky students, lucky students. Yeah. So there we go. There's a plug for your classes at uh, Faith uh, Theological Seminary, and yeah. Uh, and yeah, you're you're coming to us from the state. So let me say also, just um, well before we get into the discussion, you if you're listening, you might hear some. Um, 
some knocks and you know, one of the reasons I try and record in the evening is because there's all this construction work going on around me during the day, but we had Ooh. to set it up here in, um, you're in the States in, in DC and, and uh, we had to try and figure out a, a way to do this. So, I mean, uh, you might hear some banging and clanging, can't do anything about it. You know, live in the city. This is what it's all about. Uh, but I've set my microphone on, you know, noise suppression level. So hopefully, hopefully people won't be too distracted by that. Um, but thank you. Thank you, Dr. Jen. That's great. Um, maybe, maybe I think what one of the big questions we ask uh, uh, every, every guest that knows client is how they first came to encounter. It's usually quite a story to encounter the work of Meredith Klein. Um, how did, where did you meet him? Where did you first encounter him? How did he impact your theology? Anything you want to share there? Well, I first encountered Dr. Meredith G. Klein when I was a student of the Master of Divinity mm. in Westminster Seminary, California. I studied the subjects of Pentateuch and prophetical books under his feet. I reminded the famous phrase, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Whenever Dr. Klein walked around and delivered his classroom lectures. Moreover, I was reminded of the genius physicist, Albert Einstein, because of Dr. Klein's penetrating insights and creativity in his lectures and writings. Because of the uh, lingering impacts on my biblical theological thoughts, Dr. Klein's biblical theological insights have become the fountain of the ongoing inspirations in many different subjects in my research, teaching, and writing ministry. After I graduated from Westminster Seminary, California, I never met Dr. Klein again in person. However, we often had telephone conversations until the end of 2006, wow. uh, right before he passed away in 2007 due to deadly cancer mm. at the age of 2000, at the age of 85. Wow. Yeah, yeah wow. What an amazing thing yeah. to have had him as your teacher and and uh, I'm always so jealous when I hear those stories, you know, uh, yeah. that's a fantastic privilege. And just, I can imagine, I've heard so many stories about him walking into the classroom. And, and as you say, there's just something going on. It sounded like with between the chalkboard and the dust and the movements <laughs> and the crazy Albert Einstein, like mm -hmm. genius, uh, it must've been something to behold. So man, fantastic. You did your PhD through the Westminster Philadelphia though, right? Yes, um, yes. So that's that's the the switchover that happened at that point. We'll talk about uh, that as we get into some of your books. Um, you've written a, a whole lot, um, and so I, uh, I, I it's good, a bit of the temptation I've had to. I mean, I've delighted in reading all of the books as, as uh, part of my research, and uh, enjoyed every single one of them. Many, uh, I'm, I'm thankful that many of those themes of your other books, as you said, sort of had this fountain of of inspiration. So you can tell the Kleinian themes coming through all of the books. And so I'm thankful that we will talk about many of those as we go through this latest one. So I don't have to go too crazy and wondering where to go, but uh, maybe you could just give us a little sketch of what you've written, um, you know, 
just uh, anything you feel to say. And uh, maybe as we think more towards biblical eschatology, some of your motivations there as well, um, uh, if you wouldn't mind, before we get going. Yes. Uh, well, so far, I wrote five theological books. Yeah. In 1999, I published my first book, Covenant Theology, subtitled John Murray's and Metaphysic Clients' Response to the Historical Development of Federal Theology in Reform the Thought. It is a slight revision of my uh, PhD dissertation at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia in 1998. If you are interested in diving into the discussions and debates of the subjects of covenant theology, justification by faith, law and gospel, and union with Christ in the 20th century in the Reformed and Evangelical community, it will be a very helpful guide for you. Mm. My I published my second book, Covenant Theology and Justification by Faith, The Shepherd Controversy and Its Impacts in 2006. It is a sympathetic, critical exploration on the shepherd controversy, which occurred in Westminster Theological Seminary from 1975 to 1985 about Professor Norman Shepherd's view of justification by faith, union with Christ, covenant, and law and gospel. It was very heartbreaking and damaging controversy for the Westminster and reformed community by and large. Mm. I evaluated it critically and I think the controversy broke out because Professor Shepherd denied a proper distinction between law and gospel, mm. which was the Protestant consensus between Luther and Calvin. Yeah. My third book is Calvin and the Federal Vision, subtitled Calvin's Covenant Theology in Light of a Contemporary Discussion, 2009. I wrote it when I was a visiting fellow at Yale University Divinity School in the fall of 2007 to fall 2008. It is a critical evaluation of the theological and practical movement of the federal vision, which he studied at the beginning of the 21st century mm. within the conservative reformed community in North America. The central issue is very similar to Professor Norman Shepherd, where they deny a proper distinction between yeah. law and gospel. Exactly. In doing so, they are sympathetic to the new perspectives on Paul. They interpret John Calvin's theology. They reinterpret John Calvin's theology as well. Hmm. Biblical theology, subtitled Covenants and the Kingdom of God in Redemptive History in 2017, is the fourth book that I wrote. I had a special privilege to visit the global mission fields, such as Bolivia, Brazil, hmm. and Northeast Asia, 
several times for the short-term mission of theological education. In doing so, I felt the necessity of theological books, which are suitable for the diaspora Christian readers mm. in the global mission age. Yeah. That is the reason I wrote my biblical theology in the theological tradition of Calvin, Herman Bobbink, Gilders Foss, Cornelius Ventil, and of course, Meredith Klein. Mm-hmm. It is also designed to be used as a textbook for biblical theology. Exactly. That's what, we, that's what I will be using it as. <laughs> yes. Um, my fifth book is yes. uh, Biblical Eschatology, subtitle Covenant Eschatology for the Global Mission Age 2021. Mm-hmm. It is my second book after Biblical Theology 2017, which is designed and written for diaspora Christian readers in the Global Mission Age. <clears throat> As you know, there are many, many books about eschatology. But my book, Biblical Eschatology, is very unique and peculiar because it is a biblical, theological, and covenantal approach to eschatology. Dispensational theology and eschatology have been very influential for conservative and evangelical believers, churches, Bible colleges, and seminaries in the global mission fields in the 20th century until now. Hopefully, hopefully, my biblical eschatology may become a very good means to grasp Mm. a healthy biblical eschatology and worldview for those who are heavily influenced by dispensational eschatology, and other unhealthy views of eschatology. Currently, I am planning to write two more books, such as Biblical Missiology and Biblical Apologetics, which are designed for the diaspora Christian readers Hmm. in the global mission fields, and they may be used as textbooks in Bible colleges and seminary. Wow, that sounds exciting. I um, I almost want to get you on for another podcast on how to write so many books <laughs> in one <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> how do you do that even? Um, but, you know, just to quickly run through that again, you know, the um, just having read through them, I feel like I can make a little bit of a, a comment on each one. One of the things, if any, I, I found that really helpful, uh, everything you've just said in terms of just surveying some of the big themes there, uh, which I think our listeners will be interested in. Um, you know, one of the things that I was really helped by, you often hear John Murray, your dissertation was on John, John Murray and Meredith Klein and comparing the two. And, um, you know, you often hear that Murray opened the door to a lot of what came afterwards by way of the Shepherd controversy. But I, I found your book very helpful in showing how Murray was uh, inconsistent within himself, so to speak, and thankfully, uh, thankfully so, uh, in his appreciation of the law gospel antithesis. And he, he really kept exactly. that in place uh, the yeah. whole way through, which I, I just found it to be such a, a valuable, uh, well, a showcase of the value of sometimes allowing a certain degree of inconsistency in your own theology if needs be, uh, but certainly 
you know, to hold fast to those rudimentary uh, issues like law and gospel and never to feel that you have to, you know, iron that out uh, to match anything else going on in your mind at that point. I feel like that's really where things go wrong. If people let go of that distinction and your book shows that nicely. Um, the, uh, you know, and then as you mentioned, all of your books um, really until uh, biblical theology kind of deal with the similar theme there, right? With the federal vision and the new perspective and, and, and very, very helpful. So if anyone is interested in looking at any of that controversy that went down and just wanting to get a nice, you know, Kleinian take on it uh, really. And as you say, a sympathetic reading of the whole thing. And I just found it very helpful you uh, make mention of a lot of the the key players there. And it just, it's just, I found it very, very helpful in seeing how it all fits together. Some very, very, um, you could tell you were sort of around at the time as well. You had some key insights there that I could never in a million years have found. So I really recommend that. And then as you switch gears to the biblical theology slash biblical eschatology, and really those two work well together. I'm going to be using both of them, um, making frequent reference to them in, um, in this uh, course or a semester that's just starting now at, at Grace Theological mm. College. Uh, and the reason for that is exactly what you've said. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's for the global mission field that you've written it. But another way to say that maybe is, is that it's just a really robust, accessible uh, way to get into some free, you know, some theology that really has been hidden in many ways in, in the cloisters of the reformed archives. And is often, often, inaccessible, inaccessible, um, because you almost need to read Voss before you can read Klein. And, you know, there's a lot of, <laughs> lot of difficult stuff that you have to get through, uh, as you mentioned in the tradition of, of Bavink even, and, and so forth. So, you know, what I found that you did with those books that I really, it makes me want to, uh, recommend them to anyone. And, um, especially those getting into, well, not only those getting into Meredith Klein, cause it's very deep and very robust. So I think yeah. that even if, 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 if someone has been reading Klein for many years, I think they could still uh, profit from what you've written because it's almost like you've, uh, you've brought those biblical theological themes to bear, but you've done so in the context of systematics and you're making constant reference to the wider, per perhaps even more standardized sort of categories of doctrine that people I think will feel a little bit more familiar with uh, even just in, in, in the evangelical world. So I really think it's a, it's a great, uh, intro work. It's a great sort of uh, balancing work. It's just, yeah, bo both those books, uh, Biblical Theology, um, the subtitle there, Covenants and the Kingdom of God in Redemptive History, that says it all. And then um, and then Biblical Eschatology, which really works so well together after you've read uh, Biblical Theology. It just sort of focuses in on this one theme. So I I'm looking forward to those future ones as well, Biblical Missiology. I, I imagine that'll move in a similar line and, and uh, biblical apologetics, I was telling you the other day, wow, we're really, really, really keen to get, I'll be praying for you as you write that one, because it seems like quite a hot topic right now. Um, great. Well, as we, as we move forward, um, let me focus a little bit more on the latest book then. And, um, and again, touch on the themes that I'm sure have run uh, one way or another throughout the other books. Um, I, uh, what, what I've done is just as I, I read it through, my hope was to kind of read it and then talk to you directly afterwards, but it didn't really happen that way. I, I read it and then had a holiday and read like a million other books. And now I'm coming back to this one. So I'm going to have to kind of rejog my memory as I go. But what I did was I just highlighted some things and just sent them off to Dr. Gian and said, hey, let's talk around these subjects because uh, these things will, um, I think these things will be interesting uh, for or people want to hear about them. And um and so let me just go ahead and do that. Um, I, 
I, as I said, I bought the EPUB, um, uh, which, and then afterwards, normally I buy the Kindle because um, I'm in New Zealand and I try to get away from postage. So I buy the, the, the Kindle, but it wasn't out. And so the, the other reason I like the Kindle is it retains the pagination at some level. EPUB, it just kind of throws it out. So, um, so I won't even bother telling you which page numbers these quotes are from. It'll just confuse people. But um, let, me, let me read the first one here. Uh, you say in your book, there, is, there has never been a period in the history of the Christian church in which eschatology was the center of Christian thought. The other loci of dogmatics have each had their time of special development, but this cannot be said of eschatology. I think that's a great way to intro uh, what you had in mind uh, when you wrote this book. So maybe you could just speak a little bit more around that and what you what you had in mind when you said that. Well, as you know, in the early church, the biblical doctrines of Christ and Trinity were articulated and settled under the guidance of the Holy Spirit within the New Covenant church community after the uh, apostolic age of the first century. And during the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century in Europe, the biblical doctrines of justification by faith alone, sola fide, law and gospel, union with Christ, sacraments, and church were clearly articulated and encapsulated in the various Orthodox confessions. Mm. In the 17th century, a proper distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace was settled in the Reformed community and adopted as biblical doctrines in the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms. Mm. If you are a Reformed Baptist happily, <laughs> you will be so glad to see a so-called a proper distinction between the covenant of works and covenant of grace, along with the covenant of redemption, the Pactum Salutis, mm -hmm. which were codified in the uh, 1689 London Baptist Confession of yeah. Faith. <laughs> So yes. probably in the 20th century, the, the biblical doctrine of eschatology and the kingdom of God were closely debated and discussed, especially in light of challenges developed by the dispensational view of eschatology and the liberal moralistic view of the kingdom of God. There are various schools of dispensation. Sensationalism, as you know, mm -hmm. but I think that there is a common denominator of all the dispensational schools. It is a sharp distinction between church and Israel, which is a hallmark of dispensationalism. Yeah. Moreover, I think that dispensationalism is against redemptive historical hermeneutics, which is covenantal. Trinitarian, Christocentric, Christotelic, and eschatological. Mm. In that sense, the followers and promoters of dispensationalism are Israel-centric <clears throat> and Israel-telic, where they are looking for the visible realization of the future messianic millennial kingdom in the promised land. Mm. 
Yeah, that's a great point. I think that um, so much of uh, you know what you write in this book, especially I could imagine you know being someone in. I almost imagine myself. I don't know what, like 20 years ago, whenever it was, you know, in, in that very dispensational mindset, even though I wouldn't have even really been able to articulate it as such at that point, still in hindsight, there I am, you know, just thinking about things in a certain way. And you don't even realize, you know, it's, it's a lot of people would put it down to, you know, the, the more popular sort of sci-fi-ish novels out there as to those things that impact you. But, you know, even with the softer form of dispensationalism, you know, it's just a you, you tend to lose out so much of, of what's going on in, in the rest of the, the theological interweaving of the various biblical theological themes. And I think, I think one of the things the book does is it really just shows how it all ties together. And, you know, you lose, if you buy into even this, a very soft form of dispensationalism, it, you have to struggle to see those themes in the same way. So again, you know, very helpful. And I love the way that you, you speak about, um, you know, this eschatology needing its due almost. It is amazing. I remember, I remember reading, I think it was Sam Waldron, uh, who is a, a reformed Baptist author who, uh, one of his, one of his treatments on this subject was, was interesting. He was saying that, you know, if you think about church history, it really does map out almost like you're reading a, a systematic theology it starts with your prolegomena. You've got your, uh, you know, doctrines of crystal, well, I suppose, doctrine of God. Well, even before that canonics and, um, and then, doctrine of God, Trinity, Christ, and then it gets into your more um, Pelagian, Augustinian debates around sin and salvation, and then that works it out in the Reformation, uh, soteriology, and then, of course, 17th century was the big ecclesiological debates. So it feels like it has worked its way down that way in history, and maybe maybe we could say that dispensationalism really brought to the fore the issue of, of eschatology in a way that it hadn't really been brought to the fore before. And, um, and so you have, you know, uh, I, what could you say? I mean, you know, even in the reformed camp, you have guys like Hukumah, Bible in the Future. I really mm. appreciated books like that because they started to engage with some of the specifics uh, of, of, the, of the problem that dispensationalists were raising and just sharpened some of those things. Didn't change it, but sharpened it. And I think, you know, I see your book in that line, you know, uh, of just really sharpening and interacting with all these things going on uh, around. Now, um, uh, as we go on, um, let me, uh, I suppose, I suppose one of the things that, you know, just to keep people in on why I'm bringing this quote up, uh, one of the things that readers of your book will see is the, the frequency and, and power of the typological pictures that, that, that do weave the story together. So, you know, by the time, I suppose, when you're thinking about eschatology, you're thinking at the end, and rightfully so, there's a sense in which we all have our eyes cast to Jesus as he comes back in the new heavens and the new earth. But it's, it's almost like by the time you get there, it's not a surprise at all. It's like happened so many times already in some way, shape or form in some picture that God has given. And I, you really do get a feel for that when you get to the end of, of your book. You know, you feel like, hey, I've read this. I know I'm ready for this. I've been prepared for the glory of this event. Um, so you say, for example, what, what, just going all the way back to Noah, what Noah as a prophet saw through his own eyes from the open door of the ark after the flood judgment, I love this, was the typological picture of a new heaven and a new earth and the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So just directly mushing all of that together and showing the connection, which is great. Um, now, one of the other things that, that, that comes into the play, though, which I thought was um, 
was kind of interesting, maybe even a little bit different from Klein, was your your emphasis on the global flood versus the perhaps more localized version of it. Uh, maybe you want to tell us a little bit more about you know some of those things and why that's important to you. Yes, uh, the flood judgment was uh, God's redemptive judgment. The flood judgment was not only God's redemptive judgment upon the original sinful world, but also the recreation process of the present earth. The present earth emerged as God dried up the flooded earth through his creative and mighty wind. Genesis 8 verses 13 to 19. God demonstrated the pictorial and typological pattern of the eternal kingdom of God as the ark arrived on Mount Ararat after the flood judgment. In fact, Noah saw the typological picture of a new heaven and the new earth and the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, adorned for her, for her husband, united with the new earth, when the apostle John saw the prophetic vision through a revelation, Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. The flood judgment was not a local, but global judgment, which covered the entire original earth. The universal flood judgment was God's pictorial and typological demonstration that the final judgment will also be global, universal, cosmic on the day of the second coming of Jesus Christ. God did not separate the elect and reprobate rather than covenant community and non-covenant community through the flood judgment. Mm. For example, Ham was saved during the flood judgment. He entered into the ark as a member of the Noahic covenant community. Nevertheless, the Bible does not describe Ham as a member of the elect who receives the benefits of salvation and redemptive blessings. Mm. And this is 922 to 25. Mm, mm. Yeah, exactly. And so even though it wasn't the end, uh, it, it almost like those factors serve to show as dramatically as possible what the end would look like. Now, I know Klein sort of lessens the point on the global issue, but to be fair, I think he does, he really does major on that, that point. He does say like, I mean, you know, I think it was for the first time I really came to appreciate that, that the whole, the, the idea of the the world that then was you know and then the world that now is really separated it's almost like you had this whole big history of humanity and the whole end has happened already in the exactly. most dramatic possible way and so yeah i think all of that all of that definitely uh, leans into what you're saying there and what you're emphasizing so if anyone does want to look at that some more uh, that is in the book and you do deal with that and uh, interact with that point um i think that uh another another thing that is is so um helpful about it is that when you see these pictures over and over again 
slowly, it's almost like God's way of slowly teaching us and reinforcing. And just in case we got it wrong the first time, we get it right the second time. And, and it's almost like it's almost impossible to to end up with a wrong view of the end if you actually pay attention because we've been taught this lesson so many times. But I think one of the things that I appreciated uh, about the book was the way you brought it to bear on our current climate. You've got uh, some Hollywood movies, everything from Hollywood to social media that 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 lead to different conclusions, I suppose you could say, and uh, maybe frenzied ideas of the end. And, uh, and it would be foolish to think that Christians weren't in some way impacted by that. So I think there's a there's a calming effect, so to speak, uh, in this pattern that reemerges and teaches us these things that really can't be shaken. So, for example, you um, you say God revealed the pattern of biblical uh, eschatology. And one of the implications, as you mentioned, he will not use man-made weapons, including nuclear or atomic bombs. So you can see how that would have been huge a while ago, which are the culmination of scientific and technological endeavors in the modern era when the day of the Lord comes with the second coming of Jesus. So perhaps we could uh, just talk a little bit uh, about some of the climate. I mean, I know COVID-19 is probably relevant here. Uh, just just um, anything that you feel to say there. Well, um, with the sudden outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic, we are experiencing a global pandemic that leads the global community into chaos, mm. fear, and uncertainty of a future. This pandemic shatters the constant yearning and vision of the coming utopian world driven by people with the development of modern science and technology and cultural advancement. Mm. It is a wake-up call for believers as God constantly stirs the global community through divergent disasters such as earthquakes, famine, hurricanes, tsunami, virus pandemics, and horrible wars, which all are the signs of the last days under the new covenant age. Mm. However, God does not shelter believers from experiencing these disasters. Rather, people in the global community, including believers and unbelievers, suffer and undergo these hardships. To be sure, God confirms that we live in the last days before the second coming of Jesus Christ, who is the mediator and consummator of the new covenant. Mm. Nevertheless, the present world will not end through catastrophic disasters, such as biological or nuclear wars, although many people anticipate the possibility God will withhold and safeguard world history until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Mm. No matter how tumultuous the state of the world may be, to do so, God will bestow and grant the abundant and rich blessings of the covenant of common grace mm. without any discrimination and prejudice among believers and unbelievers in the global mission age. Genesis 3, 16, 19, 
8.29.17. The fact that we are living in the global mission age is an amazing and surprising reality that is possible because of the advancement of science and technology, a benefit of the covenant of common grace. Many people who follow the lead of leading scientists believe that the world will end due to the catastrophic side effects of global warming triggered by air and environmental pollution. God, however, will protect the environment of the present earth in his awesome providence using the people's care and anti-pollution measures on behalf of the well-being of the environment of the earth until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Hey Amen. I find that so, so important. I mean, for Christians to not have that firmly and fix, it's like you lose out on so much of your perspective of reality and your grounding and stability. And, and even, I mean, for ministry, for crying out loud, that is so important. In fact, it reminds me of um, uh, uh, Jim Rennie. And I remember when he was uh, speaking to new students going into ministry and, uh, you know, they just, I think, finished seminary and can't remember exactly what the context was, but but I, I remember it struck me. He was saying, you know, when you're you're going into ministry at a time where that's so different to when I went in, you know, it, feel, it feels to it's, he said it felt to him as though, you know, things were a lot more stable then. It felt like things were a lot more Judeo-Christian in their culture. And he was speaking from an American context. And now it almost seems crazy, you know, just just everything that's going on. And yet nothing's changed in that the, you know, the, the common grace covenant has been around for a very long time and isn't going anywhere until the end. And, you know, it, God is in control of the whole thing and Christ is on the throne. And, you know, this is what ministers more than ever need to look to and, and not, you know, find their comfort in. And that's not only true for, for pastors, but, but for, um for all Christians. And, and so I, you know, that was a distinct impression coming through the book there's a sigh of relief and yet, you know, a focus in the right place. So I would, I would suggest uh, that anyone who is struggling with those sorts of things, have a read of, of what you have to say further there. Um, now, the other thing I know that people, uh, that, that, that is great. That is almost one of the most important things to look at in, in uh, this topic from a Kleinian and reform perspective is this idea of eschatological intrusion and the way that it helps us to understand so much of these events prior you know, to uh, whether it be the flood or whether it be Sodom and Gomorrah or the conquest of Joshua or whatever it is, um, you know, you need to understand that in light of biblical eschatology. It's, it's otherwise it just takes on a, a somewhat random feel and people struggle with it at, uh, at different levels. Um, so you say in your book, uh, the fact that even innocent babies were killed by God's merciless judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's exactly what people kind of struggle with. Uh, once again, uh, verifies the immediate imputation of the original sin. So there's the theological category that you apply, which I thought was so helpful. Uh, the imp immediate imputation of the original sin as soon as the first Adam broke the covenant of works in the garden. So I've, I had never really, I think I mentioned to you at some point, I'd never really seen, and I hadn't connected that dot so, so clearly in that, that that's the fact that, you know, that merciless 
is a good word that seemingly just with that well, what is a better word maybe the the harshness that i'm looking for there of, of the judgment something we would expect in hell really you know is is intruding and how how could it be that it just takes everyone unless it it it, it proves to us that something after the the fall happened and there was an imputation of that sin so it's a real bolstering of that doctrine of uh, original sin so, um, you know, I, I don't know if there's anything more that you wanted to add to that, um, perhaps just the, the importance of this in relation to things like the, the covenant of works, covenant, Mosaic covenant, and so forth. Yes, uh, Genesis 1925 uh, um, vividly summarized the total destruction within the territories of um, Sodom and Gomorrah. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew underground. God destroyed not only all the inhabitants of the cities who resided there, but also all the living beings, including animals and trees. Furthermore, all the standing houses, monuments, and beautiful sites were burned and destroyed. In short, God did not show any mercy against the Sodom and Gomorrah, but total destruction, mm -hmm. including innocent babies. Certainly, it is a very difficult historic event to understand when we read about this event in the Bible. However, God revealed the pattern of not only biblical eschatology, but also final judgment. God executed his merciless judgment against all the non-covenant people in Sodom and Gomorrah based upon the result of the covenant lawsuit Mm. In light of the broken covenant of works in the Garden of Eden by the first Adam, mm. all the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah belonged to the first Adam who broke the covenant of works and ate the forbidden fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2, 15 to 17, 3 verses 1 to 7. The fact that even innocent babies were killed by God's merciless judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah once again verifies the immediate imputation of the original sin as soon as the first Adam broke the covenant of works mm -hmm. in the Garden of Eden. In fact, God's fiery judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah is a typological picture mm. of the judgment in hell while Lot's covenant communities escape the Zohar is a typological demonstration of the eternal blessings in heaven. Mm. In other words, God reveals the existence of heaven and hell not only to Lot's covenant community but also to all the covenant communities thereafter. Mm. through the decisive redemptive judgment mm, mm. 
yeah, I mean, you know, that presence of heaven and hell, um, it's, it's revelation. I think uh, towards the end of the book, if I'm not mistaken, you, you, um, you, you really start interacting with those who would deny a real hell and so forth. And, and, um, and I don't think we're going to have the time to get there this morning, but, or, or my morning anyway, but uh, we'll have to do a part two, but there are all sorts of these interesting theological connections that I really want to bring out. and want people to see. And so we're going to have to come back to this, but, um, but one of the, just maybe one more, one more, just to kind of uh, show what I mean here, things that I really appreciated about the book, things that were just little constant penny drops along the way. I'm just sort of going, oh, wow, I hadn't, I hadn't seen that. I hadn't put that together. So for example, uh, you know, we, we're, uh, you know, it, I, I think all Kleinians are talking about the redemptive judgment all the time. You know, we understand <laughs> the, the importance of, of that idea and, and Klein has been instrumental in that. Um, but, you know, things just seeing how that was really woven into the fiber of anything was so important to, uh, uh, woven into the fiber of every story, at least was so important to, to me. Um, so for example, you say Yahweh's uh, drowning of Pharaoh and his warriors at the Red Sea was a, re a redemptive historical reversal, which I was like, okay, well, what do you mean by that? Yahweh remembered the king of Egypt's order to throw all the male babies of Israel into the Nile River. Uh, every son that is born of the Hebrews is from Exodus. Um, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So we know that's what was commanded. Um, moreover, uh, you say, as we know, Moses was thrown into the Nile River in a basket after his mother hid him for three months for survival, and then she was not able to hide Moses anymore. Paradoxically, he was, however, rescued by the daughter of Pharaoh, and it, it goes on with all these paradoxes and all these reversals. And, and so, I mean, it, it gets overwhelming at a certain point because you're like, wow, how could I not have seen such that it's not just like one big reversal. It's like a detailed fabric reversal of every one of those details. And, um, and, and for me, just playing on the previous point that we were making there, it, it, it takes these moments in, uh, of judgment in the Old Testament, these really difficult pulls to swallow sometimes. They're, they're difficult, especially on a mission field. You can imagine how trying to communicate these things for the first time uh, is very difficult, you know, uh, brutal events. And yet it helps so much to see that it's not, it's not random at all. It's very, very, very uh, connected to what happens at the end. So every single time, certainly you're meant to be thinking heaven and hell, but even in terms of the details, they're meant to be driving home certain points that, that, that what, what Satan is doing, so to speak is, is being ironically reversed and, and uh, God's glory is being shown in his ability to get at all those details in the historical event. Um, so yeah, I found that absolutely amazing. And there were lots, lots more, uh, moments in the book like that, but that's just one example. I don't know if you have anything you want to talk a little bit more around that subject. Yes. Remembering the historic episode of Pharaoh's plot to kill the newborn male, uh, babies of Israel in the Nile river, Yahweh decisively down drowned the king of Egypt and his warriors under the water of the Red Sea. Moses, who survived in the water of the Nile River when he was a Hebrew baby, became the masterful and dramatic conductor of Yahweh's redemptive judgment at the Red Sea mm. by using his staff in his hand. In short, 
it was a glorious reversal of the drama of redemptive history through Yahweh's redemptive judgment at the Red Sea. Yahweh rejoiced to set the day of judgment against the Egyptian warriors at the Red Sea. In fact, the day of judgment was the day of the Lord in which Yahweh separated the covenant community of Israel and the non-covenant community of the Egyptian warriors. As the covenant community of Israel witnessed, the Egyptians dead and on the seashore, they sang the glorious song of Moses to Yahweh together. Exodus 15 verses 1 to 21. It was the song of Yahweh's glorious victory against the Pharaoh king of Egypt and his warriors in the Red Sea. The glorious victory song of the kingdom of God spread out over the dead corpses of the Egyptians on the seashore. Once again, the victory song highlights the visible reality of Yahweh's holy war and redemptive judgment separating the covenant community of uh, Israel and non-covenant community of Egypt. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea, verse 19. Looking back at the Red Sea event, the author of Hebrews identifies that the covenant community of Israel passed through the Red Sea as on dry land while the Egyptians were drowned at the time of Yahweh's execution of redemptive judgment through his holy war. Hebrews 11, 29. Crossing the Red Sea by the covenant community of Israel, the covenant descendants of Abraham were in fact God's grand redemptive display where he powerfully demonstrated the pattern of biblical eschatology. Mm. At the Red Sea, God separated the covenant community of Israel and the non-covenant community of the Egyptian soldiers. Mm. He gloriously executed the redemptive judgment between the blessings of life and the curses of death in the midst of redemptive theater of the Red Sea. Mm. In fact, the covenant community of Israel tasted the blessings of heaven, while the non-covenant community of Egypt foretasted the curses of hell through God's execution of redemptive judgment at the Red Sea. Mm. Well, very sobering. Um, makes you give that much more attention to the prophets and um, you know the covenant lawsuits, which I know you often uh, speak about as well. And, uh, and, you know, there are all sorts of theological points that you make uh, there. 
you know, one thing that I've wanted to talk to you about was just the the way in which you feel heavenly rewards uh, can can square with Christ's um, work on our behalf. I felt that's quite a fascinating question that we've wrestled with a little bit on on the show as well. Um, and then <clears throat> even just things like social media and how we can use that on the mission field, stuff like that is all in the book. So we're going to have to come back. We're running on the hour now. So I think it's uh, probably uh, going to need to um, draw to a close. But um, again, thank you so much, Dr. Gian. That was that was very helpful. I'm going to um, just one more time ask that people go and grab the book, buy it, read it, and uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll come back to it again and again. Um, where can people follow you? Where can they get in touch? If uh, where can they just kind of know what you're up to? Uh, I know you're on Facebook. That's that's one thing. Uh, but if they want to keenly be aware of this book on apologetics that's coming up. Where do they find you and what's your progress? Well, I would like to be just, just a silent. <laughs> so that wise, all, man. wise man. Yeah, all of a sudden, you know, the intrusion of the glory cloud from the heaven. <laughs> yes. That will be the day of a publication of J.K. Jones, biblical eschatology. So I, I yes. like the intrusion of the glory cloud For sure. of a biblical apologetics. Yeah. So, okay. I like that. That's a wise way to do it as well. Just sort of hide out and then boom, we get it. Uh, it almost feels like you magically write them that way. You know, it's just, it's just, there the books come from heaven. <laughs> so, um, all right, cool. So, uh, well, uh, is there a is there a web page of any sort? No, you you you're uh, um, not. Um, no, no, no. Okay, all right. So you're you're going to be um you're going to go back to your monastic cloister. You're going oh, to go, exactly. <laughs> and you're going to go do some writing, and no one can get in touch, and you're going to be on the holy mountain, and that's the end. So the next time you hear from Dr. Jim, it'll be on Two Age Sojourner. No, I'm joking. But um, uh, yeah, hopefully we will have you back, and uh, we will uh, talk through the rest of those details, and uh, and hopefully many more to come. So once again, thank you, Dr. Jim. Really appreciate your time, and um, I'm sure everyone will appreciate this as well. It's my special privilege uh, to be your guest at the. To Age Sojourner podcast. Amen. Thank you so much for the invitation. Mm-hmm.